Let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 7, and you'll find that on page 230 in the black Bibles on your seats, page 230 or 272 if you're using one of the large print. 1 Samuel chapter 7 this morning, just a quick uh, break before we go back to the book of Acts next Sunday morning. I thought uh, with a new year beginning today, morning and evening, we would have two sermons that just try and set us up uh, for the new year. First Samuel chapter 7 and Luke's gospel chapter 7 this evening, looking at the Lord Jesus and the sinful woman in Simon the Pharisee's house. Chapter 7 verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord to the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, For as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Amen. Let's just pause and pray briefly.
Heavenly Father, today so much lies open ahead of us. So much is past behind us. We want to thank you that we are yours and you are our speaking God. So now hear us, we ask, for we want to live by every word that comes from your mouth. Help us to hear you and love you, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm quite sure that over the last week or so, many of you will have seen the 10-year challenge online. Uh, Maybe you've done it. I think young people tend to do it. The older you get, you don't do this. The idea is that on Facebook or Instagram or something like that, you put a picture of you from 10 years ago, and then you post your current picture. So 10 years apart, side by side. There's a reason why it's called the 10-year challenge, because it's pretty unforgiving, isn't it, to do that sort of thing. 2020 is a significant 10-year marker. So the idea is show the world how much you've changed in 10 years or how little has changed if you're fortunate. Time passes, doesn't it? Day by day, week by week, month by month. But then we reach these significant moments in time, 10-year anniversaries or 20 years or 30 years. And we want to mark them somehow. Here we are together as God's people on the first Sunday of a new year. And First Samuel teaches us just to mark time by doing something really significant. See, look at it this way. What would your 10-year spiritual challenge be like? Where were you 10 years ago? What has happened in your life since then? What about 20 years ago? 30 years ago? And here you are today. Have you stopped yet in the new year just to thank God for bringing you to here? To now, to this moment, still walking with Him, still wanting to know Him more. Just have a look in your order of service at the hymn that we're about to sing together after the sermon. Look at the first line of the second verse. We don't often sing this line. We change this line uh, when we sing it because we don't really know what it means. But I've put it back in this morning. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Thou hast brought me to this place. See, in 1 Samuel 7, after the people have returned to God and after he has rescued them, Samuel commemorates what has happened by putting on display a great big gospel boulder, a stone, putting it in front of them. And he gives the stone a name. He calls the stone, up to this point the Lord has helped us. As far as this place the Lord has helped us. Here's why it's so wonderful. That stone does two things. It looks backwards in time and it looks forwards. Till now, until today, right up to now, the Lord has helped us. There is a a chain of mercies behind us, a stream of mercies behind us. And that's wonderful. But doesn't it also look to the future? He's helped us until now, but what about tomorrow? Till now he's helped us. 
But will he abandon us tomorrow? See, that hymn captures it beautifully, doesn't it? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Thou hast brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Ah, you see, here is the great big gospel rock that God's people could see in First Samuel. They could look at it and say, say out loud, yes, God's mercy has flowed behind us and held us and kept us and it will flow ahead of us into the future. Friends, I want to say this this morning. As a new year begins, the very best thing you can do at the start of a year is to cause gratitude to God to flow from your heart by looking back at your life. Looking back. We're going to look in just a moment at where these people were 20 years ago. Where were you 20 years ago? And some of you here this morning weren't even born, or you were in nappies. And yet, now here you are. Nothing will set you up for tomorrow better than being grateful for God's hand in your yesterday. That will set your new year up wonderfully. Here's what it means to raise an Ebenezer. These aren't my words, but someone has put it like this. Stand in the present to dwell on the past so that we can be steadfast for the future. That's what it means. Standing in the present to look at the past so that we can be steadfast for the future. See, memory keeps gratitude fresh, doesn't it? Memory keeps gratitude fresh. And gratitude keeps faith faithful. So I want to show you three things here from 1 Samuel chapter 7. Three ways that Samuel and the people of Israel stand in the present to dwell on the past so that they're steadfast for tomorrow. How had the Lord helped them? What had he done for them? How has he helped you today? Here's three things to see. Number one, these people knew God's mercy for their sin. Number one, they knew God's mercy for their sin. I don't know what you're like with New Year resolutions. You know what never ceases to amaze me about them? Every time I see them uh, roll around each year in different ways, online or in print or so on, what never ceases to amaze me about New Year's resolutions is how surface deep they are. All they ever promise is better habits, better diets, better productivity, new resolve to kind of deal with all the clutter of life and the poor choices that we slip into. But only the gospel reaches our hearts. What, you, what use are all these new habits on the surface if my character stays the same? Look how different New Year's resolutions are from the gospel in verse 14. The gospel is, until now, the Lord has helped us. The Lord has helped us. What are New Year's resolutions? You can help you. You can help yourself. Here's the very heart of why Samuel wants to put a big flag in the ground, why he wants to build a monument. It's because the people have tasted freshly God's mercy for their sin. And when you taste it, you cannot help but cry out, this much, Lord, this much you have helped me. 
So you look at verse 2 of chapter 7. From the day that the ark, this is the ark of the covenant, the symbol of God's presence with his people, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I think it's best to assume that the long time, the 20 years, was 20 years of ongoing sin and rebellion and confusion, and at the end of the 20 years, then the people lamented. See, the, the book of Samuel up to this point, if you read it, is one long sorry tale of God's people rejecting God's words, spurning God's ways, and because of that, being denied God's prophet in their midst. It was 20 plus years of hard-hearted apostasy, and eventually it breaks them. They start lamenting after the Lord. That word lament, it means crying, wailing, weeping. And that is why verse 3 is so remarkable. Samuel said, if you read chapters 4 to 6, Samuel is missing. Samuel has been missing for 20 years. Can you imagine that? Someone you haven't seen for 20 years, and then here he is in their midst again. The moment the people are serious about sorting out their sin, God sends them Samuel again, and now there is mercy for their sin. And look, when you taste God's mercy for your sin, you do three things. Three things, three R's, they're easy to remember. Number one, you return to the Lord. You return to the Lord. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, it doesn't matter if you've messed up five minutes ago or 50 years ago or if you've, you've been messing up for 50 years and you've left God out in the cold. The gospel for wandering pilgrims is always return. Come back. Come back. Sin separates, doesn't it? Sin pulls people apart. It's what happens in our homes when you have an argument, a relationship goes wrong. Two people turn their backs to each other and pull apart. And here the gospel call is always come back, return. That's mercy. Friends, you should hear mercy in church every single Sunday for the rest of your lives. It's why we have, it's why the first words printed in our worship are a call to worship. Never a bar to worship, never an exam for worship or a filter for worship. But God calling. Return, come back. Maybe, just maybe, some of us here today just need to begin this year by returning to the Lord. First R, return. Second R, repudiate. Reject. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. See, the, when you hear the gospel, it never says, does it? it? It never says, take Jesus into your life. And when you take Jesus into your life, stick him on the shelf beside your football and beside your pornography and beside your work and beside your children and beside your career and your money. No, the gospel says you need to repudiate everything else before me. Whatever else you cherish and treasure more than me, you need to reject. Return, repudiate. Number three, redirect. 
Look how Samuel puts it in verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts and you are rejecting the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, then direct your heart to the Lord. Look how Samuel puts it twice. Direct your heart and serve him only. Direct your heart to the Lord. Take your wandering heart and redirect it to God this morning. All of me, Lord, all of me, Lord, for all of you. Exclusive, single-minded, wholehearted commitment to you, Lord, and to you alone. We're about, we're about to sing it together. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee. Let me ask you, do you need to do any of these three things today as the new year begins? Some of us will, maybe most of us will. Return to the Lord, redirect our hearts, repudiate our idols. Where are you today with mercy for your sin? Sin? Me? No, you, 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 must, you must have got this wrong. I'm a Christian. What does your wife think? Or your children? And Samuel is saying here, it is never too late to come back to God. And the gathered covenant worship of God's people is always a return to mercy. This is the Israelite 20-year challenge here. And the picture from 20 years ago, if you put 20 years ago beside 1 Samuel 7, it was X-rated, it was awful. I actually saw that this week on Twitter. Somebody doing the 10-year challenge. Post, it was lovely to see. Most people do the 10-year challenge and it's all to do with appearance, whether the wrinkles are showing or whether things have got better rather than worse. Somebody posted a picture of them, of themselves 10 years ago at a party and then a current picture and they said, 10 years ago I was lost and did not know the Lord Jesus. And now I know him. Jesus has changed my life. It's wonderful. Now, you don't need a dramatic conversion story, but we will not say verse 14 unless we know we need God's mercy for our sin. Some of us here this morning weren't believers 10 years ago. And yet now here you are. Have we paused yet to worship? What is your only comfort in life and death? One of those beautiful words that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sin. All my sin. Number one, they knew God's mercy for their sin. Number two, they knew God's mercy in their need. They knew God's mercy in their need. These people here have been lost in sin, but it's not their only problem here, is it? What was their overwhelming need in this chapter? Literally breathing down their necks. It begins with P. It's Goliath, isn't it? And all his chums. The Philistines. Look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. If you return to the Lord, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So there's another R here, rescue. That's their need. They need to be rescued, don't they? Because, well, look again, verses 5 and 6. If you read those verses, it looks kind of, doesn't it, like a cozy church weekend away together, gathering, and everybody's getting warm, fuzzy feelings. But verse 7, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered, they don't see it that way. It looks like mobilizing for war, doesn't it? So they mobilize for war, and now the Israelites are terrified. The people of Israel, verse 8, said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What they need is deliverance. They need to be saved. (coughs) So friends, look what happens here. Here is God's mercy in their need. They know they need him, and they lean on him, and they depend on him, and they know he alone can help them. That's the mercy in all of this. They know only God can help them. Not themselves, not Samuel, not even the ark. Look at verse 8 again. Look at the exact wording. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us. That he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. See, back in chapter 4, when the people were lost in their sin, they thought, we've got the Ark of the Covenant in our midst, and it's like a lucky charm. It, it will save us. It doesn't matter about our sin or where we are before the Lord. We've got the Ark. We've got God on our side. We've got the fearsome furniture. All will be well. Just look at chapter 4, verse 20. No, that's not right. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. That's it. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Look at this. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. It? Really? And God gives them here three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, three chapters of heavy military losses to say just one thing to them. It is me you need, not the ark. The ark of the covenant, you see, the the whole point of covenant is relationship, isn't it? People say, oh... We've got the gold box, we'll take that. Who wouldn't love a gold box in their church? We'll take that. Thank you very much, God. Now, you, you can shove off. The box will do. We'll take it from here. Can you imagine saying on your wedding day, there you are standing at the front, your bride at your side, and the best man steps forward and gives you the ring, and out it comes from his pocket, and you cannot believe it. You have never seen anything so beautiful. In all your life, amazing. On your wedding night, you take the ring to bed with you and you just stare at it and you talk to it. And all week long on honeymoon, you take pictures of the ring. You put your ring on Instagram and every year on your anniversary, you take more pictures of it. And all the while, there's just that sort of irritating voice in the background. I think you've forgotten me. Now, these believers... 
knew, finally, they knew God's mercy in their need. They see now that only God can help them. Not religious paraphernalia. Friends, Christian people only say, verse 14, until now the Lord has helped us. Christian people only say that when they know only God can help them. Only God. What we have here in chapter 7 is just a beautiful picture of humble, contrite, prayerful dependence on God. They know only He can save them. What did you make of verse 6? They gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. See what they're doing? What do, you, what do you need to live? What are you going to do in just an hour's time when you go home? Take into your body water and food. Water and food. So look at the ritual. What are they doing? They're giving the water away. And they're not putting the food in their mouths. They're going without the very things you need to live. Because they, they know now, they're saying, God, you are the source of life. See, these people come to realize you can eat and drink, but you can be dying on the inside. Your heart is turned in on itself. Or you can fast and pray and go without the very sources of life for a time because you're crying out to God saying, it's you that I need. You are the one that gives life. You know, I I think it is a terrible indictment of God's people in any age when we are more likely to go without food for dieting reasons than we are for fasting. Terrible indictment of us when we we care more about what food does to our bodies than what it does in dulling our hearts. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith says that solemn fastings as well as thanksgivings on special occasions should be used in worship in a holy manner. I think that's something we're going to look at as a session in the coming years. I hope we'll come to it together as a church family. Solemn fastings as well as thanksgivings. I think we're good at the thanksgivings bit, aren't we? But I think we'll benefit from growing into the fastings bit. For here is a people developing a deep Deep, profound, life-altering, life-shaping dependence on God. When you depend on God with all that you have, you do two things. You fast and pray. You fast to say to God, awaken my desire for you, my appetite for you. And you pray as you say to God, you are the only one who can save me. So why are we so poor at praying? I think we're poor at praying because we think we can do things. We can fix things. We can run a church, lead a building project, raise a family, write an action plan. We can do things. We're capable, we're able, and we think we can fix things. It's in my hands, in my strength. I wonder if you'll just allow me for just a moment to be gender specific here. 
see what you think of this. I think there is a reason. A reason why up and down the land, in churches up and down the land, throughout the world even, why women outnumber men in the church prayer meetings. Why does there tend to be more women in church than men on the whole? Now, please don't mishear me. This is a generalization. You're all immediately thinking of the exceptions. Okay, I know that exactly. But here it is, I think. Women's sense of dependence is more finely tuned than men's on the whole. They're more aware of it. Women talk about their support networks while men talk about their plans of action. Isn't that right? On the whole. You see, prayerlessness is pride before it is anything else. And male pride often takes the form of activism. I would love our men, our husbands, our heads of homes from a passage like this to see that we cannot say, verse 14, unless we know we need help. And one way to measure how much you know you need help is how much you pray. How quick are we as God's people, as 2020 begins, to say each day to God, your name your kingdom, your will. And then to say, give me, forgive me, lead me. We're about to say it together, aren't we, in the Lord's Prayer. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Can you get more humble and dependent than then saying, give me, forgive me, lead me? I know there are a hundred reasons not to be at the prayer meeting with the church family, but... When a sense of dependence is high, when a sense of dependence is overwhelming, people just pray. They just can't stop crying out to God. It happens. Thank you, God. I need you, God. See, all our spiritual disciplines, reading, praying, corporate worship, week by week, in all the gathered assemblies of the church, these spiritual disciplines, none of them, not one of them, are about making you more precious to God, are they? But they are about making God more precious to you. That's why they're there. When we don't do them, God slips from view. See, this this kind of expression in verse 14, sometimes you see it in real life, don't you? You get little snapshots. I saw it just two days ago, watching the terrible fires in Australia. There's been some astonishing scenes, hasn't there? And I don't know if you saw the scenes of the families that were rescued by the Navy off the beach, almost like a, a war film, like uh, the D-Day landings or something. The Navy arriving into Sydney beaches to rescue people literally from the flames onto the ships. And the people lie there on the decks of the ship. And what are they saying out loud? Thank you. Thank you. Those people will spend the rest of their days raising an Ebenezer to those brave men and women who saved them. Look how you helped us. Prayerlessness is practical atheism. There's no one to call on because I can do it. There's no need, I can't meet myself. So here's the question for you this morning. What will your 10-year challenge look like? Not 10 years in the past, but 10 years in the future. What will 20 years look like from here today onwards? 
Do you want to still look the same? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, he has the devil say this. Incredible words. It is our great strategy to leave a man at the end of his life looking back. Okay, this is the devil's strategy. To leave a man at the end of his life looking back saying, I see now that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. When that happens, Satan says, job done. Life wasted, time given, gone. I see now that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. They knew God's mercy at their sin. They knew God's mercy for their need. And I want to just finish with this. Number three, they knew God's mercy through their suffering. They knew God's mercy through their suffering. See, many commentators point out, of course, if you get to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, it's worth asking with the Israelites who, who watch Samuel roll this big stone into place, it's, it's worth asking with the Israelites, up till now the Lord has helped us, really? Just hang on a second, Samuel, before you put the plaque on the rock. Have you forgotten chapter 4, verse 10? Just look at chapter 4, verse 10. How many Israelites died? The Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Keep reading chapter 4, 5, 6. 70 more die at Beth Shemesh. The ark has been missing for 20 years. People are wandering in the wilderness for 20 years. Till now the Lord has helped us? Really? Sounds just like the sort of things Christians put on a calendar. Just to spiritualize life. I'm counting my blessings one by one. Well listen to these words. Samuel knew, as he rolled that stone into place, Samuel knew the bleakness of the last years as well as anyone else. Yet even amidst their desolations, the Lord was helping them. He was helping them to know themselves. Helping them to know their sins. Helping them to know the bitter fruit and woeful punishment of sin. The links in Samuel's long chain of until now. The links in that chain were not all of the same kind. Some were in the form of mercies. But many were in the form of chastenings. I don't know about you, but I love that. I need that. The links in the long chain of Samuel's until now were not all of the same kind. See, we we might want to say that the streams of mercy that God's people stand in and that wash over God's people, the streams of mercy are not all the same kind of stream. Some are waters of blessing. Some are waters of discipline. But it is mercy all the same. Brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, don't you think that's true as you look back at your life? All the points where where you could, if, if you had to, if somebody said to you, look back over 10, 20 years, I want you to raise a stone 
I don't know what we would do, put a flag in the ground or plant a tree or something. Something you want to put a plaque on it. If you were to pick some moment in your life where you'd want to say, up till then the Lord helped me, I suspect you would be raising an Ebenezer, wouldn't you, at severe mercies as well as tender mercies. I think that's true. Where did you grow the most? On the mountaintop when all was well? Or in the valley where you could not see what God was doing? And yet now you look back. Maybe the time where we wept the most. One day, over time, as the stream of God's mercy flows, we will look back on it and thank him for it the most. That's the kind of God we have. It can happen. (coughs) Several times here in church I've told us, haven't I, about Gerald Sitzer, the American college professor. In one moment in a road accident, he lost his wife, his daughter and his mother in a road traffic accident. And he called his memoir, A Grace Disguised. A Grace Disguised. Isn't he standing with Samuel? Until now the Lord has helped us. Friends, if today you're feeling lost in the present, standing on the precipice of a new year, have a look back and see if there are any Ebenezers, any moments where you saw God's mercy. If you're feeling fearful in the present about tomorrow, I guess many of us are, On all sorts of levels. Friends, remember this. Every single sign of God's mercy to you in the past is a sign that you are standing in a stream of mercy. It will flow and flow through the generations and through the years. Till now, when Samuel raises the stone, it is a a marker in the stream, not a dam in the stream. And God has given us today New Testament Christians. God has given us regular Ebenezers. Every single time we have a baptism, it is there on display. Tonight, in evening worship, the Lord's Supper. The reason they are physical signs of God's mercy to us is because both baptism and the Lord's Supper point back, don't they, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no greater marker, no greater sign, nothing greater ever raised up of how God helps us than the cross of his Son. Here's how the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8, uses the cross of the Lord Jesus as his Ebenezer. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he has done that, till now if he has helped us like that, how will he not also help us tomorrow? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Amen. I want us this morning, just before we sing, why don't we take just a moment of quiet, I want to ask you to press Faith's replay button again. So just before we sing, let's take a moment, press Faith's replay button again. Maybe you want to replay a part of the Bible story where you love remembering how God helped his people. 
Maybe you want to replay the story of church history. Some examples you know where God has helped his people. Maybe you want to just this morning, in the quietness, replay your own story. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of God helping you.